I really like going to church. You know, we are the church, and but I really like gathering with you and worshiping the Lord. And I want to invite you this morning to open your Bible with me to the book of Ruth. And uh, that's, I've enjoyed this, uh, going through and studying and preparing. And uh, um, I hope it's been a blessing to you these last few weeks. And we're going to uh, look at uh, Ruth chapter 3 today and, and then finish up next Sunday morning uh, um, as we uh, consider this Old Testament story. Let me, let me pray with you for just a moment. Father, we're asking you to, in these next few moments to, uh, through your spirit, um, to, to give us an ear to hear your voice and a sensitivity to your spirit. We certainly, God, want to be more informed from the truths of your word and we want to be the disciples that you've called and commissioned us to be. Remind us today of your great love, of the redemption that you've made possible through our Redeemer. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. If you remember uh, from this story, a Jewish family during a time of crisis leaves the land of Judah a dad named Elimelech decides to move his family away from Judah to the land of Moab. The decision to find greater economic prosperity in a pagan land among pagan gods full of idol worship to spiritually compromise just for a short time, just to, for a short time to shelve their faith and eventually to move back to the promised land and to pick up as normal. That seems to be what's going on in the text. But as frequently happens, the compromise comes with some consequences. The Bible says in verse 2 uh, earlier of the text that the family remained there, proving to be costly. Remember, Elimelech dies, the husband, as well as both sons, Malon and Kilion, placing Naomi and her surviving daughter-in-laws in a precarious position without any provisions. So Naomi, in her triple bereavement, tries to figure out, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do? And she makes the decision to go back to Judah, back to her, her roots. God, in his providence, was working, speaking, providing her with some thoughts and some direction, guiding her steps, and so... You know the story, Naomi and Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, decides to go back to return to the land of promise. And we also saw that the other daughter-in-law, Orpah, leaves. She goes back to Moab, and so only Ruth remains with Naomi, back, back to Judah. And then in chapter 2, God in his providence works to provide for Naomi and Ruth in ways that they cannot see. And it was a great reminder how God is also doing the same thing in your life, same thing in my life. God is always working in ways that we seldom see or are not quick to see. And so that leads us to chapter 3. So with your Bible open, I invite you to read with me chapter 3 starting in the very first verse. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, 
said to her, Ruth, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Ruth, therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself. Put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Yeah, I bet. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, that's a nice way he's feeling pretty good. A little buzzed, a little sauce there. After he had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain And she, Ruth, came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? And so she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. And he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ifafs of barley, laid it on her. Then she went into the city. It's about 80 pounds of grain. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her. And she said, these six ifafs of barley he gave me, For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And then she, Naomi, said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. What a great story. What an interesting story. Last week from chapter 2, we saw that Ruth steps up and she determines to work. 
She demonstrates initiative and volunteers to go out and glean in the fields. Hot work, difficult work. And it just so happens that as she goes out to work that the Lord directs her steps to a specific field. It's a field belonging to a Jewish man named Boaz. Boaz is wealthy. He's kind and young and a man of faith and devotion to God. And it just so happens, it just so happens that the Lord directs Boaz to be in the field at the exact time that Ruth is there working and they see each other. And it just so happens God in his providence brings about the circumstances for Boaz and Ruth to meet. And they seem, as we looked at last week, they seem to be uh, pretty fond of each other. And it just so happens that Boaz is a distant relative of Naomi's family. And so at the end of Ruth's first day on the job, she gleans enough grain for a month, finds favor with Boaz, and Naomi's faith begins to be revived. Through Ruth's initiative and hard work, and through finding favor with Boaz, God begins to stir up and revive Naomi's faith. Do you remember prior to this time, through triple bereavement, losing Elimelech and two sons, Malon and Kilion, that Naomi begins to turn inward in her grief and becomes bitter. And she seems to be angry in her heart towards God. But God, in his providence, in his providence, remember we looked at that last Sunday, providence, from a, from a word provide, pro right? Meaning ahead. Vide meaning to see. And so providence is about God seeing ahead of us. God sees ahead, but it not only does he see ahead, he sees too. Had a dual meeting, providence, God. And so that's providence. God sees ahead of us and he sees to us. God's providence. And he sees Naomi's pain, and he begins seeing to her needs. And it's through Ruth's initiative, her hard work, and through Boaz's generosity that God begins to soften Naomi's heart. And I want you to consider, just keep your Bible open if you would, and I want you to consider some of the scenes in this text. It's a, it's a pretty fascinating story. It's kind of fun, really. Time begins to pass. If you look up in chapter 2, verse 23, it says that kind of conveys that Ruth is out gleaning every day during uh, the wheat harvest and the barley harvest, probably six to eight weeks during this time of year. And so she's out gleaning every day. Time begins to pass. And Naomi begins to think a little bit. What if Boaz is a solution for all our problems? And what if Boaz were to marry Ruth? And what if anything, if there's anything that I could do to kind of move things in that direction as a mother-in-law, to kind of spur things along between Ruth and Boaz? And so she has some ideas. Her first idea is, well, Perhaps I'll suggest to Ruth that she just walk up to in, the, in the field and get down on one knee before Boaz and say, Boaz, would you marry me? Nah, that doesn't seem like a good idea. I've got it. I'll, I'll run an ad in the Bethlehem Gazette and put it in the social section. 
widowed, Moabitess, young, good-looking, willing to work, seeking, hard-working man of good character for long walks and barley fields and quiet dinners and bread and wine by the fire and must like children. Nah, that's not it. I know. Perhaps there's a legal solution. For in the law of Moses, God made a provision for a distant relative to serve as a kinsman redeemer, which certainly applies to Boaz. The kinsman redeemer statute in God's law was a provision that God had made for slaves and for widows. A kinsman redeemer was someone that if they had relatives that had been sold into slavery, in fact, sold themselves into slavery to pay off debts, if they were behind in their bills and they'd sell themselves off, then the kinsman redeemer had an obligation to buy his relatives to redeem them back out of slavery. Or the kinsman redeemer would also be obligated to marry a brother's widow. So you ladies who are married to a guy that means if he died, then his brother would be responsible for you. And if you had no children, then you would have children through your, brother's, through your husband's brother. How's that sound to you? That was God's provision, right? To carry on the name, to care for and provide for the family. I mean, by the way, you, you'd have to be careful who you married and make sure you checked out his brothers. Good, just a, just a little advance. Naomi is thinking in the right direction. She's, her thoughts are based on God's word. They're based on God's law. But what seems to be flawed is her methodology. Good thinking, thinking along of God's word. What does God's word have to say about this situation, if anything, but pretty manipulative, a bit forward, a bit risky? I would suggest to you that any challenge you are faced with, anything you're confronted with, any situation dealing with a relationship strain or crisis, whatever it is, it is always right for you and I to ask ourselves, what does God say about this? What would glorify God in this situation? That's always a good place for us to start. And so Naomi is thinking about Ruth. She's also thinking about herself a little bit. And she finds some direction in God's law for a provision about a kinsman redeemer. And so her suggestion, while she's on the right path, is not the best methodology. It's not the advice that a mother wants to provide with her daughter on how to land a husband. Perhaps while... And you got to think about this a little bit. You know, Naomi's thinking, perhaps while Ruth is out working in the fields and gleaning, Naomi is sitting alone in her apartment. And Naomi is reading racy romance novels. And Naomi is reading lead articles in women's magazines about how to use feminine charms to snare a man. 2.23, right? The verse, times past. And Ruth has crossed Boaz's path many times, but things seem to be stalled. And so Naomi begins to think, since little progress has been made, her ideas kind of jumpstart things between them. 
And so verse 2 of the text conveys that Naomi has done some investigative work. She discovers that Mr. Boaz has a routine. He usually goes to the threshing floor in the evenings and he winnows grain till late. And then Boaz eats dinner or supper if you're in the south. He has a few drinks, retires, and sleeps out on next to the pile of grain, guarding it through the night. And so in verse 1 of chapter 3, Naomi shares her idea with Ruth. Ruthie, I want to talk to you. I've been thinking about your future and about your security. And you know that I want the very best for you, right, Ruthie? You remember, I was the one who wanted you to go back to Moab to find a husband. Well, I've been thinking about all of this. I want you to listen to me. I have an idea. I remembered in the law of God about the kinsman redeemer, how God made provision for a widowed wife to be redeemed by a relative. And Ruthie, you know that Boaz is our relative, right? Then in verses 2 through 4, and this is what it says. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's exactly what it says in verses 2 through 4. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a long, long, hot, soapy bath, get all that dust washed off and all, get all washed up, cleaned up, and I want you to put on your best-looking outfit. I'd suggest that red robe with that lacy edge. It looks really good with your brown eyes. And I want you to put on plenty of makeup and splash on some perfume and get some of those olive breath mints. And before it's dark, I want you to go down where, go down where Boaz sleeps. And you stay out of sight. And after he's eaten supper and he's drank a few drinks and he's a, he has a cheerful, merry heart, you wait for him to fall asleep. Then Ruthie sneak into the tent and pull back the covers and lie down at his feet. <laughs> and then just be still and see what happens. Wait for his instructions. Verse 4, it says, and he'll tell you what to do. What a plan. <laughs> My guess is that kind of plan would sure jumpstart the relationship. Let's think about this. And, uh, I was in college and uh, me and another buddy were walking across campus one night and we saw something, it was dark, we saw something moving by a tree. And this has nothing to do with the text, I just want to tell you a story. <laughs> well, it's kind of related. We saw something moving by this tree, and we got looking closer, and it was, a, it was the biggest toad I've ever seen. I thought it was a frog first, but it was this dark, brown, blackish toad, pretty hideous, and it, I mean, it was huge. Weighed several pounds, big old toad. And I, I don't know where where these ideas you get come from, but I got the idea, me and the boy, I said, let's, let's pick that thing up and let's go back up on the third floor where our dorm is and let's, let's do something with that toad upstairs. So I was a little bit afraid to pick it up because I'd always been taught if one of those things do a number on you, give you warts. But I, I braved it out, you know, and picked up that toad and went up to the third floor and we lived in an honor dorm. Nobody had locks on their doors there. And and so we went into Jim Pratt's room. And uh, I, I don't know where these ideas come from. You just, just have these kind of just guy, guy ideas, I guess. And, and so we pulled open the sheets of Jim's bed, and we took that big toad, and we stuck it down, stuffed it down into the bottom of the sheets of his bed, and then pulled those sheets real tight, tightened them up, and 
turned off the lights, and then we waited. And we waited, and Jim never came back to the room, so we just gave up and went to sleep. But in the middle of the night, we heard Jim. And uh, he, he freaked out. He put his feet down the bed, and we found later he picked up the whole mattress, all the sheets, threw everything out the window. He thought there was a big rat in his bed. And from that point on, I was nicknamed Frog for the next several years while I finished college. But the idea, right, you put your feet down in your bed and something moves, you're gonna, there's going to be a reaction. And Ruth in verse 5 says, I'll do what you say. I'm okay, let's go for it. And so look at verses 6 and 7 again in the text. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came, Ruth, softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. So very quietly, softly slips into the tent, uncovers his feet and lays down. So what exactly... When you read this, what do you think Naomi is proposing? Now, don't spiritualize the text. Don't sanitize it. What's the proposal? Well, it seems to me that she genuinely cares for Ruth and wants her to find a husband, definitely seeing the possibilities in the Mosaic law for Boaz to act as a kinsman redeemer. But again, her strategy, her methodology is pretty flawed. And as I read and studied this text, the only interpretation that seems possible is Naomi is proposing that Ruth seduce Boaz. Since Ruth is a Moabitess, perhaps Naomi thinks that she will act culturally immoral. It's an example of human manipulation rather than faith in God, a failure to trust in God's providence. So instead, I will take matters into my own hands and manipulate things to get what I want. Surely none of us have ever done anything like that. It is a faithless plan. It's an attempt to take matters into my own hands without seeking God's glory, without obeying his words, submitting to him or trusting him in his faithfulness and in God's goodness and presence and power to work all things for our good. And it's a failure to wait on the Lord. Have you ever done that? The second scene, verses 8 through 13, after this faithful plan, this faithless provision, you see a faithful plea. Boaz lies down at the end of the grain heap, and after a long day in the sun and a productive harvest, a good meal, his heart is merry, and he falls soundly asleep. And in the middle of the night, perhaps due to the night rural Bethlehem air, Boaz wakes up with some cold feet. And so he reaches down to find his blanket. And what he discovers in the middle of the night in the darkness is he's not alone. Look at verse 8. He's amazed. Not only does he wake up with cold feet, but in the darkness feels something strange at the foot of his bed. And he's startled with the discovery that he's not alone. It's not a toad. There is a woman there in his bunk at the foot of his bed. 
And his question seems pretty logical. <laughs> if you wake up in the middle of the night and there is a woman in your bunk sleeping, sleeping, curled up next to your feet, it might be natural to ask, who are you? Ruth responds, I'm your servant. It's me, Ruth. Remember, I've been gleaning out in your fields for the last two months. And what Ruth said next separated her from Naomi's instructions. Instead of the situation remaining ambiguous or leading to something immoral, Ruth's character comes through and she makes her intentions clear. She's not interested in a night of passion. She was, she was seeking a commitment. And instead of following Naomi's plan, you remember in verse 4, just to be silent and see what happens, be silent and wait and see how Boaz responds. Instead of letting Boaz take the initiative, in verse 9, whether it's through fear or faith, she blurts out, Boaz, I'd like you to consider taking me under your wing, for you are a close relative. And as strange as it is in the way it unfolds, Ruth is asking Boaz to consider marrying her and thus to provide a refuge for her and Naomi. And in the case of Boaz serving as Ruth's kinsman redeemer, I would point out that he was not under any legal obligation to do so because Ruth's former husband was not Boaz's brother. However, what Ruth seems to be asking Boaz to do is to consider acting according to the spirit of the law. He was a relative. To serve as a kinsman redeemer who at his own cost would act to rescue them though he didn't have to. Sounds like another redeemer, doesn't it? At his own cost would choose to rescue even though he was no, under no obligation to do so. I was also intrigued by the connection of Ruth's response here in the text. Chapter 3, look at verse 9. And I was intrigued by comparing that to uh, what Boaz says to her in chapter 2, verse 12. For in chapter 2, verse 12, Boaz says to Ruth, May the God of Israel provide you with a full reward under whose wings you have come from a re for a refuge. And now Ruth, in effect, is saying to Boaz, Perhaps the, re the reward of refuge from God's wings might be best realized by you taking me under your wing. And what's cool about the whole story is God's continued providence. He sees, and he sees too, and he continues to see, and he continues to see too. The third scene, there is a faithful pledge. Boaz agrees to her request. From verse 11, he says, Ruth, don't be afraid. I'm going to do all that you ask for. I along with all of Bethlehem know that you are a woman of worth, a woman of character. And so Boaz pledges to honor her request. He's, he's willing to take some risks. The risk of marrying Ruth, the, the risk of social costs of marrying a foreigner, the, the risk of absorbing financial costs in the future for her and Naomi. In fact, he seems kind of elated to do so. For in verse 10, he, he commends her. He says, I'm, I'm just thankful that, Ruth, you didn't go after one of these younger guys. You see, Ruth, to some degree, was willing to take the risk of following Naomi's advice, questionable advice, to put herself in such a vulnerable position with Boaz. And Boaz was also willing to take the risk of redeeming Ruth. 
How many of you are risk takers? Any of you risk takers? Some of you men probably are more willing to take risks than some of the women. If you're a risk taker, let me ask you, if so, for what? What are you willing to take risks for? For money? You willing to take risks for financial gain? Are you willing to take a risk for career advancement? Are you willing to take risks for success? I want to ask you, what are you willing to risk for the sake of the gospel? I was... Uh, I'm just going to say something to you. Take a risk of saying something to you. And it's the truth. Uh, there's a brother here in the church who shared with me that over the past several years, history of this church, whenever there's been special mission offerings, if the goal is 30,000 or if it's 40,000, whatever the goal is, that two or three families give 90, 95% of all the money for the mission offerings. And I was glad for that, to have that information. Didn't tell me anything about what anybody gave, who gave what. He just said, it's been the history of this church where just a couple of households give almost all the mission offerings. You know what that says to me? That the rest of us are doing nothing. That means, just for example, we're not willing to take any risks, even with our finances, to give to an offering that helps to advance the gospel. You hear what I'm saying? We're willing, we're willing to take risks for things that matter to us. And so I just, it's not in my notes. I just want you to think about that as we prepare for our mission offering. What am I willing to risk? What am I willing to sacrifice to give up? For the gospel, this was one example. I was very disappointed this week when the president of our Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee resigned. Very disappointed. There's some controversy going on. And what disappointed me was his rationale for his resignation. And I quote, he said he didn't want to risk staying in that leadership position and risk the loss of his reputation. And he seemed to be overly concerned with what people might say or think about him. And so, instead of staying in the saddle, the position that God had placed him, and helping us wither the storm and just do the right things, he's concerned about his name and his reputation. And so he resigned. I want to ask you, what are you willing to risk for the advancement of the gospel? Are you willing to risk your comfort? Are you willing to be, for, for God to stretch you and to respond in obedience to however he might speak to you? 
Are you willing to talk to other people about the gospel and share your faith? Or are you scared? You're worried about what they're going to think about you, what they're, they might think that you're, you're odd or you're different and you're weird. And let me say to you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are odd, you are weird, you are different. He calls us to come out of the world. He says, live in the world, but not to be of the world. We are different. We're doing our kids and our young people a great disfavor, a great disservice if we don't teach them that if you follow Christ, you're never going to be cool, you're never going to be popular, and you're never going to fit in. And if that's your goal, God's never going to use you. Some of us are not even willing to take risks and open our mouth for the gospel in conversations with other people because we're scared. We're afraid of what they're going to think about us. Risks. Listen, when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't an issue of risk. <laughs> he laid his life down. It wasn't just a risk. He gave his life for us. That's the gospel. And he calls us to do the same thing. In the text, Boaz and Ruth both were willing to take some risks. And when you and I try and live by faith and live in obedience to Christ, there's going to be some challenges, and as was with the case with Boaz. If you look in verses 12 and 13, there's some complications that surface in the text. For Boaz says, hey, there's a relative who is closer to you than I am, and this relative has first dibs. He has first right of refusal in this matter of serving as a kinsman redeemer. But he promises, I'm going to follow through, Ruth, and if this closer relative, if he acts to function as your redeemer, then so be it. But if not, then... Happily, I'm going to serve in this role. And in the meantime, we want you to notice how Boaz seeks to protect Ruth. He wants her to leave early in the morning, concerned about her reputation, being tarnished. And, and so before she leaves, he, he urges her to leave early for, for this, or not to be tarnished. And he also provides some additional grain for her. And then you see the text close in verses 16 through 18. Because, and it conveys something about faith's practice. When Ruth returns home, it ends kind of a similar way that chapter 2 ends. Naomi asks Ruth again to share the news. Give me a report about how things went last night. How did things go? And Ruth begins to tell her the story. And again, 80 pounds of grain. God in his providence sees. He's working ahead of them. The plan didn't turn out certainly probably the way that Naomi thought. It turned out better. It turned out better. Do you, do you really believe that God's plans for your life and trusting him and submitting to him and being obedient to his word, do you really believe that God's plans for your life are better than what you could imagine for yourself? It turns out better. She returns home. He's working on this redemption issue. Boaz is at work, and she also goes home with a, another huge provision of grain. God, in his providence, sees. He's working at them, and he sees, too. He's supplying their needs. And as always seems to be the case, faith always 
demands that we learn to wait. To wait on the Lord. To wait on the Lord. Naomi says to Ruth, now let us just sit still and wait. Now, the good news is they only had to wait for a day. (laughs) Far more difficult to wait when it goes day after day and month after month and perhaps year after year, we continue to wait on the Lord. It's harder to maintain our faith in God and in His providence when we're thrust into one of life's waiting rooms. None of us like to wait. But here Naomi and Ruth are waiting for the redemption, hoping that this man from Bethlehem by the name of Boaz will come through delivering them from earthly poverty and might enter into the covenant of marriage with Ruth. And I want to propose to you that there is a greater love story at work, a greater love story than what occurs between Ruth and Boaz, and it's the love story that God has revealed to us through his word. A love that he demonstrated in the coming of Jesus Christ. His love for us took him much farther than to a pile of grain at midnight. It required him to leave the glories of heaven to come to this earth in the form of a baby to take on the form of a working class man. This love caused Jesus to abandon the eternal glory and to become a servant. And this same love took Jesus all the way to the cross. And there in the darkness, far greater than any midnight darkness, abandoned by his father, unable to look upon his his son's suffering as he absorbed your sins and my sins on the cross, Jesus offered himself up for you and for me. He didn't risk his life. He literally gave it away. And he didn't do so because we are such wonderful people. He did it all because God was committed to saving sinners like you and me. Do you know God's love this morning? Do you really, do you really understand how much God loves you and values you? There's so, there's so, many, so many of us perhaps who are critical of ourselves and doubt ourselves and beat ourselves up and think that we're not worth anything, that we don't measure up, we're not as good as that person, not as talented as them, and we don't have it all, and we're just really down on ourselves, and we need to be reminded that there is a God who created you and who loves you. And he loved you so much that even in your sinfulness, he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, for you. And my prayer is that the love of Christ, His once we begin to fathom and understand His great grace and mercy and love towards us, that the love of Christ would compel us and would constrain us to live for Him, to take risks for the gospel, to do whatever is necessary to advance the cause of Christ, to be kind to people, to serve people. I was on the phone yesterday with my daughter. She's working and she's struggling. You know, am I, what I'm, dad, and what I doing, does it really make a difference? I'm doing this. Is, how, how does this really make a difference? And I told her, I said, doesn't, doesn't matter what you do. 
doesn't matter whether you plan events. It doesn't matter whether you work in a bakery, whether you drive a garbage truck. It doesn't matter whether you work in a hospital, you're an attorney, you're a plumber, a banker. Car. It doesn't really matter what you do. Your purpose is unchanged. Your purpose is to be on mission for Christ every day and to bring God glory through whatever you do. That's what matters. That's what matters. May the love of Christ constrain and compel you to live for him, to be willing to take risks for him, to suffer for him, to wait on him, to be just, just whatever God wants you to do to advance the gospel and whatever, wherever, whatever you're doing for his glory. My prayer is that you and I would do that. And we would see God continue to do new things and great things through us together as a church family. Let me pray with you.